Hey, what's going on? This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with the Eat to Perform podcast, and I'm actually out here live sitting in Dr. Andy Gelpin's house, or the, the fancy office here, so to speak. So say hi to everyone. Hey, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to actually be on. Uh, I was going to say it's a pleasure to be here, but technically you're here. <laughs> technically so, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, so it's a pleasure to have you here, actually, Mike. So yeah, yeah fun. Yeah, and Andy was very nice to give me a nice tour of the lab and all the research and everything that he's got going on today at Cal State Fullerton. And you want to just give a background on yourself, a little bio for people who are not familiar with you for some odd reason? <laughs> sure. Um, well, it's understandable if you're not familiar with me. <laughs> um, you know, so I work at Cal State Fullerton. I'm a, a professor out there. Um, my PhD is in what's called human mus- or human bioenergetics which is kind of a fancy way of saying muscle physiology or metabolism. Um, what that really means is everything from nutrition to performance, strength and conditioning, all the way down to the more uh, what we'll call basic science. I don't mean basic as in simple. I mean basic as in the definition of it as um, molecular and cellular and single fiber work. And so what we try to do in our lab is try to answer really super practical questions. So eating questions training questions, lifting questions, but then let's not only find out the answer, but let's figure out what's happening at the molecular or cellular level that's causing that or helping that or explaining it. So really we're a human performance lab. Um, my lab is actually called the, um, let me get this straight, hold on. <laughs> it's going to be fancy. Yeah, it's the, uh, the molecular, no, it's the biochemistry and molecular exercise physiology lab. Ooh, nice. We've got two exercise physiology labs. We've got a strength lab, a human performance lab. So that's kind of what we do um, is is we try to do really applied practical things but add a little bit of a molecular or cellular spin to it um, when we can and when it's appropriate. Yeah. So for people listening, why is it useful to get down to the molecular level? right? So if you're, you're doing a study and you find that mm-hmm. X is better than Y – What's the point of getting down to the nitty-gritty molecular level? Why is that beneficial? Well, i got to keep my grad students with something to do. <laughs> keep them busy. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so a bunch of different things. You know, you could take this in a bunch of angles. Um, for the most part is, what you have to understand is most people in this area of research use exercise. And I'm, I'm giving the, the quote fingers right now. I saw the air quotes right? come out. Yeah. <laughs> they use exercise to learn about physiology. All right. And then other people use physiology to learn about exercise. Okay, where most people are going to say, all right, we want to learn how some protein turns on another protein. And we'll go through a exercise, quote-unquote, model, which means they'll take a cell and they'll shock it with some electrodes or something, and they'll call that resistance exercise. <laughs> right? But what they're trying to do is figure out, well, which protein is, turns on which other protein or which cellular thing does another cellular thing. The other end of the spectrum is, let's just figure out what thing what things improve performance and then backtrack and try to explain what physiologically changed that allowed that performance adaptation. And so we're probably more in that boat, where we're not really trying to develop new mechanisms of physiology, but what we're trying to say is, I think we can learn about physiology if we study exercise properly. And so one, one explanation of it would be, if I took a bunch of old people or sick people and I studied disease, I can't really tell you what's healthy because we're not studying healthy. We're only studying disease compared to not sick. 
And not sick is not the same as super healthy. And so we want to say, okay, you've gotten a lot of information on sick. You got a lot of information on not sick, but there's no information on what does a good, what, what is a normal cellular process? How should a cell function if it's actually truly optimally healthy? And so part of what, one of the reasons we do this is let's start describing what a normal healthy cell looks like. Let's start, what, what does a normal cardiovascular system look like? What's a normal metabolism look like? What's a normal fiber type? And when we say normal, we mean someone who's a high-level performer because we think that's physiologically normal. Just because you're not sick and you're young and you're not broken, we think that's still sick. And so what we're trying to do is say, you're just skewed in your thought process. You're too far down the spectrum. So that would be one of the reasons why. Um, in addition, it's going to help us eventually start optimizing training. You're seeing more and more and more of this stuff coming out right now where you can get your DNA tested and they'll tell you how to, how to train. Yeah. Train this way, train that way, right? Well, how do you think they're getting that information? Is we're starting to say, oh my gosh, weightlifters have this going on and powerlifters have this going on and marathoners have this going on. And we just describe them. And then eventually we can use that to back calculate, okay, so maybe you should train like this because you have more of the genes or the proteins associated with good strength or things like that. Now, we're just at the beginning stages of that stuff, but that's eventually where it's going to lead, lead us down to is, and I'll, and I'll try not to jump into a rabbit hole right now of individualized <laughs> like, genetic testing, but that's really what it's going to get down to is you're going to actually be able to go in and get some basic testing done and people are going to be like, oh, you've got this gene this protein, you respond this way, you need to do some ice bath training, you need to have a very high carbohydrate diet, and you need to train really frequently, or whatever else. Right, right. Right, so that's, I mean, we're just at the beginning stages, but that's why we want to do it. How far away do you think we are from that, do you think? Not far. Um, like in time frame, if you were to put you on the, the grill and say, uh, give us a time frame, what do you think? Some people are doing it already. Yeah. Um, and so the time frame comes down to resources. Um, some of the things that we're doing with, uh, well, with some people that you'd be, I, I can't say, yeah, yeah. but you know the names, <laughs> um, where we're trying to get big, big, big databases. And we're talking tens of thousands of exercisers and start to look at these things at the macro level. Some of the things we're doing with epigenetics right now, um, actually coming from your neighborhood, some people in, uh, Detroit, kind of mm -hmm. a neighborhood. Yeah. Midwest so, area. Yeah. Right. Good people. <laughs> uh, there's some there's some of this happening at the behind the scenes, but what's really going to change it is when we can start putting databases together. Uh, and so think of it this way: instead of you going in and you get your blood drawn, and your physician looks at it, your blood draw results go to a big database. It's kind of like the government kind of looking over mm -hmm. you know all of your stuff, but in this sense, say someone like me or you are looking over all these things, yeah. and then you start to look at these big trends, and you go, oh my gosh. All the people that have this and that. And these things are already happening, but they're not being published yet, and they're not totally out there. So it's already happening. There's companies out there that give you these products you can use right now. Um, I would say, I don't know, 10, 15 years from having some really yeah. pretty dialed stuff. Right now it's pretty Yeah, yeah. Uh, at best. Um, but I would say 10 to 15 years, you're going to have some really, really good, I mean, look at what people are doing with blood draws. Yeah. People are getting blood draws left and right now and going, yeah. oh my God. The price has gone down to be so cheap. Exactly. I mean, I just had a full blood panel, everything done, uh, through my physician and he contracts with another, uh, company and it was 200 bucks. 
you know, right. for pretty much most everything I want, blood and urine. Right. You know, or even a couple of years ago would have been two, three times that amount, especially for me as a consumer. Easy. You know, so yeah, labs I mean, are driving the price down pretty fast. How many years have we been saying, oh, you got to get your blood work done? Yeah. And everyone's like, yeah, okay, I'm not paying 600 bucks for it. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. And then I'll pay a doctor to consult to tell yep. me, and it's a thousand, but like, I don't know, I'm not doing that. And I just, I have all of my athletes do it now, hundred bucks or less. Yeah. Maybe 200 bucks. Like, yeah, depending on what you're looking at. It's not nearly as much as it right. used to be. Um, and even like on the database thing, if you look at like the business model for 23andMe, yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a lot totally. of right. genetic testing. Their yeah. model is not necessarily genetic testing. They That's what they do. That's what they advertise to the consumer. Mm-hmm. But what they want is the database. And their goal is to have the largest genetic database yeah. that they can mine for data. And you can... You have to sign that away, say, you will anonymously yeah. use my data, I give you permission, right? So yeah. it's an opt-in, um, but then for drug companies, exercise, whatever, yeah. and it's kind of amazing to me that we don't really have that for health. If you think about it, right, you go to your physician, when's the last time your physician ever asked you any performance-based things at all? You know, they just kind of uh, look at your body comp and kind of guess, so... Terrible, we're, right? Yeah, we're... Yeah, it's it makes good. It, we're moving in that direction at least. Totally, yeah. um, and you nailed it with the twenty-three and me. That's exactly. They don't care really at all about the income from that no. stuff. They're, no, they the, lose money initially. Yeah. They lost a lot of money. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, look at the price point. Yeah, that's very very low. Trust me, I run a lab like that on a much smaller yeah. scale, <laughs> and it is very expensive. So they're killing it. That's exactly what they're looking for. Um, you're going to get other things like that. You're going to get these big databases. It doesn't make with the internet now. It doesn't make any more sense to do it that way. And more companies like this are going to come. Um, and, and the thing is, it can make big changes really quickly. You know, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. I, I'm working with an athlete right now who's a reigning world champion. And we just got her blood work done maybe three weeks ago for the first time. And her hematocrit, hemoglobin, and iron levels were basically non-registering. Oh! I mean, hematocrit was registering, of course, and hemoglobin, but they were really low, and their iron was basically, like, not on the charts. And this is, you said, someone who's at a very high level. She's a reigning world champion, right? Yeah. And she's a multiple-time national champion. She's the favorite to win the gold medal in this this Olympics. And we gave her a little bit of iron and some vitamin C to help co-absorb, and my gosh... Yeah. Four days later, she's calling me like, I feel amazing. <laughs> she was thought she was overtrained. She was, yeah. And I'm like, all we need to do is give you a little bit of iron. Why can't we have that at the at the normal person level? Yeah. Why is that only for a world champion? Like, well, why can't you go in, uh, like, I got to go grab the mail, and then I got to get my blood done real fast, and then I'm going to go swing to the grocery store. And then I'll, yeah. like, why can't it be that simple? It's not that expensive anymore. It's getting that way. And I heard a rumor that in California, I think, actually, which is where we're at, that, was it, Walgreens or CVS or one of the mainstream drugstores was trying to contract to get your blood drawn and analyzed basically on the spot for really cheap. Really? Yeah, and I don't think it went through. The rumor was because of some legislation. I think you still need a doctor's permission and all this other stuff. Uh, yeah. But... There's business models that would say, as the cost gets cheap enough, you could literally go into Walgreens, do a quick blood draw. They have a machine that's all automated, right? Person puts in your blood, spits everything out, and maybe it comes back and just says normal, abnormal. Maybe it calls your physician automatically, or, or who knows, right? It's becoming to the point where the cost of running the analysis is not going to be the rate limiter, which will be really cool to see. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we're 
we've got cars that drive themselves. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, well, why are these? These are not real problems. No one's just taking the time to really go after it. And there's going to be. And there are other, there's a lot of startup companies in this space looking at things like this. Um, even if you start looking at other markers, non-invasive markers, uh, look at the HRV push. Yeah. All these things, right? You're like, okay, we start slapping a few of these markers on people, but we collected over 30 million people. You're yeah. start really getting some answers. And what's going to allow you to do is, and I can't, I can't say this company name confidentially purposes, but I know that there's a company, at least one, that's doing basically, okay, all of your data goes into a database. Mm-hmm. And what you're able to then to do is it'll subcategorize by things that make you unique. Because, you know, the old yep. joke, okay, if you're one in a million and you're in China, there's 600,000 yeah. people like you, or whatever, you know, whatever yeah. the number is. Here's the point. You're going to be able to go in and say, oh, okay, I'm 33 years old. This is how tall I am. This is the activities I do. Here's my body mass. And you'll find a database of 10,000 other people just like you. And then you can start looking through and go, oh, my gosh, 90% of these people have the same thing. I guess they're all intolerant to... Soy, mm-hmm. I didn't think I was, but I guess 90% of the people with the same thing do, maybe I should cut out soy, oh my god, I feel better. Yeah. Or whatever it happens to be, and so you'll start to see these big patterns. Now, those aren't necessarily causal, but they are very helpful if you can be like, oh my gosh, because here's the complaint. You go in to see your physician, and no one, well, like, well, you know, they're going to give you basically algorithms, which are, yep. here, I see you, you have your blood pressure's this, your heart rate's this. Your whatever is this? Okay, you have this problem, and you're like, no, I don't. Congrats, you get a statin. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's. I just watched. Um, I don't know if you've seen Prescription Thugs. Oh, uh, I haven't yet. I gotta watch it. Watch I heard it. their interview, but yeah. I got uh, I got on the, the the TV right now. Oh, cool. We watch it tomorrow morning. So. Chris Bell, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know, like you can go to the watch that if you want to see the nonsense about the statins. But anyways. Um, my point was, yeah, there, there's going to be very, very personalized healthcare very, very soon, and it makes sense. Um, I've, I've said this before a lot. If you've, if you've seen an interview from me or anything, I say it about every interview. But if you start looking at the data on what predicts mortality, and I'm not talking about 25-year-olds here. I'm just talking about the average person. Uh, you start seeing things like, what's your one rep max leg strength? Yep. Significant predictor of mortality. And folks, when I say mortality, I mean not like a surrogate, like, oh, blood pressure. Like, I mean dead. Yeah. Mortality is what they call a hard endpoint in studies. Yeah. You're dead or you're not dead. <laughs> yeah, there's no... And as cool as that sounds, it's very quantitative. <laughs> yeah. It makes research easy because we don't have to be like, oh, is that high? Well, you know, he's kind of a class four heart failure. No, I think he's class three. Eh. Totally. <laughs> I like I said, dead or yeah. not dead. Yeah. Right? And you start seeing other things, VO2 max. Yes. All right? You start seeing things like lean body mass. Yep. All right? And, and those are the three most significant predictors of what you're looking at. Again, to be very clear, if you're 25 years old and you take your squat from yeah. 450 to 470, you're not going to live any longer. Yeah. <laughs> Compared yeah. to the average person. Right. Unquote. You know, so basically here's the deal. We go out to the grocery store. And we just start looking at people. We start grabbing them. The people that have the more muscle mass, higher VO2 max, and have a higher leg strength. Are going to be living longer. Yep. And so back to your, your point earlier when you brought up, like, why doesn't, why aren't, why aren't these questions being asked when I go see yes. a physician? Like, okay, you know, I got your blood cholesterol levels here. I got your blood pressure. Um, now I need you to go do a leg press one rep max. Yep. And I need you to do this. And like, well, what? 
well, yeah, you want to see how healthy you are. This is what health really means. Yeah. These are some small markers, blood pressure, cholesterol, but let's see how strong you are. Let's see how fast you are. Let's measure your reaction time because, uh, you know, if you look at the aging populations, one of the biggest predictors of health among aging populations is foot speed. Oh, for falls. For fall catching, yeah. right? So here's the fun thing. You trip and fall, you got to be fast enough to move your foot, to put it in the right position, and then you have to have the eccentric yeah. strength Hold it. to load to catch the load. Yeah. And so it's funny because now all these fields are moving towards strength and conditioning. And, and you know, we have a classic aging um, lab in our department, and some Debbie Rose, one of the most legendary in the field of aging, successful aging. And she's all excited a few years ago because she's like, man, we, you know, we found some stuff that's really significantly correlated to falls and prevention. And her whole career is fall prevention. She's like, the leg power. And I'm like, you know yeah. shit. <laughs> like, yes, we've been telling you that. And yeah. they're just like, their minds are blown. And it's we're not like, balanced. I don't have to live on the BOSU ball. Oh, exactly, right? Like, you're not strong. <laughs> you're not fast. If you can't get your heart rate up really high or get to whatever high yeah. means for you, yep. this is health. So... Um, those markers are going to be there, but you're going to have databases like this where you can just go plug in your numbers, and then you start to really see, oh my gosh, I'm on the, the 10th quartile. 10th mm-hmm. okay, quartile, that doesn't work. 10th <laughs> quartile. The, the bottom of the 4th quartile. <laughs> bottom 10%. <laughs> there you go, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's the basic idea. Yeah, and I think it's cool that all those are actually performance markers, Yeah. and that there's this huge crossover now between performance and health. And I think physicians are sort of classically trained in algorithms, pharmacology, but you talk to most physicians like general physicians and go, what things do you deal with on a daily basis? It's usually body composition, it's risk, it's, I don't want to say things that are basic, but it's it's kind of the things that they were not really taught that much in school. Totally. And, you know, the docs I know that are really good at that stuff had to spend, you know, a lot of time learning it on their own. They obviously have the background, but they don't have a lot of the specific knowledge. Yeah. And even further beyond that, they don't have the capacity to really test anyone. Like when's the last time you went to a physician's office and they had a metabolic heart? No way. Or they had a grip strength even, or or anything that's what we would consider in the sports area, very basic introductory. And it's not from a, a lack of evidence. I think it's just Oh, no, no. It's the way the whole system is sort of set up, I think. Yeah, and, and, and you made a sort of indirect point there. that It's not their fault. Right. Oh, no, I'm not blaming physicians. No, yeah, neither am I, to be yeah. very clear. I mean, I, w- I was fortunate. My PhD, um, the academic portion of that, we had to actually go through med school. Yes, not that's the, not, very not, common. Not full med school, not anything, but just the physiology. Yeah, the section. physiology department. I did the same thing. We did the gross anatomy lab through med school at the University of Minnesota. Right. Yeah, all the phys classes were through there. Right. So I'm the only non-physician in the class. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and and they're taught, you know, we always say, like, physicians are taught to keep you from sick to not sick. Yes. Like, But that's very, very different than stopping you from getting sick. Right. But that's generally not their goal. And, and again, to be fair for physicians... When I walk in to see a doctor, I'm not using them to try to peak my performance. I'm going right. to a doctor because something shit's wrong. Yeah. Bad. <laughs> and I need someone that has an expertise in that area. Yeah. But it's just nice now to where they're starting to defer because they used to be like, oh, I got it all. I can't mm-hmm. take you from sick to max performance. And so now they're going, I'm just going to stop you from getting sick. Oh, you want to maximize performance? Well, then you need to go see these mm-hmm. strength and conditioning coaches or specialists or whatever it happens to be. And there is... There is that gap there. And it would be just like us being arrogant enough to think we can stop you from being sick. Right. So right. we can only cover some part of the spectrum. Um, 
when I was when I was telling you with the uh, in med school, I remember we were going through about the same time we did a study in Stockholm, Sweden. So we went over and we looked at eighty to ninety year old cross country skiers. So these were folks, and this is published in the Journal of Applied Physiology. Go read this full thing, but I'll give you the short version. Uh, these were folks that were world and Olympic gold medalists and world champions in the 1940s and 50s. Huh, very interesting. And they haven't stopped skiing since. Wow. And so they have a race over there called the Vasa Lopet. That's my best Swedish. So I Is that the super long one? It's just, it's, no. it's like their version of the Vasa Marathon. Oh, okay. But it's on skis. Okay. So the elite skiers are finishing in two hours, and the, the average is four to five hours. Okay. I don't know what the distance is, but yeah. obviously it's much longer. But yeah. <laughs> they're on skis. So it's, I give the equivalent of a Boston Marathon. And what we did is we went over and we took biopsies, VO2 max, I mean everything you can imagine, and we compared them to age-matched non-exercisers. Hmm. Now here's the unique part. The, the comparison group was in Muncie, Indiana. Oh, wow. Okay, because that's where we were. <laughs> we traveled to Sweden to get these skiers, and we came back. But what we said is, let's actually make the control group 80+, plus, but still independent living. Sure, makes sense. Yeah, but here's the problem. This group of independent living is already the cream of the crop. Yeah. If you're 85 years old and you're living by yourself, doing well. you're already doing well. Yeah. So that's not average, right? The average 85-year-old, we would have to actually go to assisted living, mm-hmm. right? So we said, these are already the cream of the crop, but let's see if these guys are, these trained athletes are any different. And one of the things we noticed, we actually published um, what we think to be a world record in VO2 max. Really? Yep. In fact, the name of the paper is, I think, New Records, New World Records in Aerobic Capacity or, or something like what that. What was the number out of curiosity? So the group average age, I can't remember, 80, 86 or something like wow. that. Wow. Um, and their average, so to give you context here, uh, a normal college male walk around walks around at a VO2 max of, say, 40, 45 milliliters per kilogram per minute. Something like that. Mm-hmm. That's probably about fair. Something, right? Yeah. You, you're moderately trained. You're probably 45 to low 50s for a man. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but I think our group average was 42. Wow. And these are 80 and 90-year-olds. Yeah. And we had one individual who was 92 years old, and he came in also right around, I think, 42. Wow. Uh, actually, I think our group average was 38. And his was 42 or something. Wow. So you're talking about a 90-year-old <laughs> with a VO2 max around the equivalent or a little bit low for a college-aged male. Yeah. Which was crazy. The non-exercising group was about half of that. Oh, wow. But still crazy healthy. Mm-hmm. When we, I'm not kidding you. When we were doing the VO2 max test on these folks, they would come in and they spoke Swedish. And I don't speak Swedish. <laughs> And so we're trying to like explain to them what to do. And we're in obviously a cardiology center in Karolinsk Institute. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. So yep. we're there with Paratesh and, and uh, we're there and it is cardiologists and nurses that are used to giving a VO2 max test or VO2 max test on folks that are going to get like a 15. Right. And like their heart rate, they're like, okay, let's do max heart rate. Okay. 220 minus your age. Right. So if you're 90, 220 minus 90. <laughs> You get to be one, one, 115, 120, you're like, all right, we're done in time. Mm-hmm. Our group average is like 165. Wow. Right? Just just not even on the charts. Uh, I may not be exactly, but ballpark, right? 
So we start getting on there. We're doing taking these folks to these VO2 maxes, and we come from an exercise physiology. Lab. Oh yeah, the cardiology department starts freaking out. And man. they're getting to one ten, one fifteen, and they're like, they're ready. The nurses are ready. Whoa, cut the test. And we're like, go 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 go. And we're screaming, go 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 go. And they're like, what in the fucking shit are you doing? We're like, go go. We're screaming, and so it was like, I can't remember the Swedish word. But it was like, you know, go 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 go. And they're cruising, and then the, the eyeballs, and they're going nuts, and we're like. <laughs> this is this is what a normal person should look like. Yeah. And they were just so used to seeing people stop at 10, yeah. 15 mils, you know, 20. Oh, I get to heart rate at 50% and I'm already gassed. Mm-hmm. And these, I'm not kidding, these, almost every one of them would finish the test. And you've probably done this a hundred times too, but we always like to ask people when you finish a VO2 max test. Now, by definition, it's supposed to be an absolute max, right? Yeah. Take you to your, your total max. We always ask, like, all right, did you did you have any left at the end there? Yeah. Did, did you quit a little early? And, of course, everyone always says, oh, yeah, yeah, I probably could have gone a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Always, right? <laughs> but these guys get down, and they stop, and they're like, and we really didn't understand the test. We have a better idea. Like, can we try again? <laughs> and we're like, no. You're no, 90. You just didn't get access. <laughs> and they're like, not even a minute after they're done, they're like, yeah, let me try again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> But the same folks, you watch them walk across the street in the snow, and they're walking. They're not like shuffling like yeah. old crippled ninety year olds. Like, excuse me, sir, do you need? They're walking across. They don't the street. look like a penguin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was when we got those data. Uh, you know, you look through all the health markers. The ninety year old, the skiers. I mean, just off the charts in VO two max, they're going to live a whole lot longer. Mm-hmm. They weren't necessarily stronger. It's okay. It makes a little sense. Uh, some of that performance didn't shake out, but the the cholesterol, all that stuff didn't didn't matter. Yeah. Here's what mattered: these guys had a double VO2 max, and if you want to measure performance, you want to you want to know performance. No one cares about performance of your leg strength, right? Say, so, nor the average person is like, I don't care how strong my legs are, I don't care what my 1R max is, but I want to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's VO2 max is performance. That yes. is health. That's the same thing. The same, right? So you want to train like an athlete, or you want to train to be healthy, folks. This is the same thing. Yeah, yeah, and that's what's always interesting. So even the clients I work with, like some even general population, come in and they go, "Well, you know, my goal is just to be healthy." And I, I used to kind of have this discussion with them, and now I just realize I'll just do this as it's an ongoing process. I'm not trying so to convert them on day one. Yeah, you're gonna lie to them. And I tell them that, okay, so healthy. I'm just gonna translate this into performance numbers for you. So I don't really give them the the option, you know, because yeah, in my yeah, head yeah. I'm thinking if your VO2 max goes up, not that we're measuring it, but your aerobic capacity, your strength goes up, sure. and your movement goes up, so your gait, your walking Quality. mechanics, you move more fluidly, I'm making you more healthy. Even though I'm translating that into a performance sort of quote-unquote spec. Totally. You know, which what is, is health? Can I move well? Can I get up? Right. Do I have energy? Am I tired all the time? What the what the flying? What do you think that is? Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, I literally just I've been grading. We've been talking. We both been grading. Soon, right? <laughs> oh I god, can, my bag's right there. I can oh, pull out yeah. the exams and show you. But I'm sure you believe me. You know, one of the questions on my exams, my senior grad level classes, is okay. You have a client that comes to you and says, "I'm just interested in being healthy. I don't mm-hmm. care about sports and stuff anymore." And like, how are you gonna respond to these people? And it's the same conversation we're having. Yeah, it's like this is what health means. So I'm going to train you exactly like I would train an athlete with a couple of exceptions. I'm probably not going to advance you as quickly. Yep. And I'm probably not going to take as many risks as I would with an athlete. 
right? I got six weeks until I got this fight coming up. Yeah. Right, this isn't healthy, but we're going to have to do this. Yeah. And those people, if you're working with a true professional athlete, by definition, they make money performing and doing by their sport, yeah. right? So you're always going to weigh the kind of the risks, right? Always. But yeah. someone who's even just a recreational exerciser, you know, like myself, I, I probably don't need to push everything to the max. There's just, the risk reward is just not there. No one's ever going to pay me for any sport that I'm doing. <laughs> right. I, you know, I'm being realistic. Right. You know, so there's, there's always that trade-off because I think people, the culture a lot of times is I want to be the professional athlete. I need to train that way. Mm-hmm. The reality is, no, you probably don't. Some yeah. of the principles, yes. Sure. Some of the things that they do, yeah. yes. To that degree, I think that's a really bad idea. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's a general uh, uh, Pareto principle, right? Yes. 80-20. Cool. Well, if you get 80% of the benefit from 20% of the work, for most of us, that means that's a no-brainer. But now if you take that to the other end of the spectrum with the athlete, they need that last 20%. Yeah. That's what separates. In fact, the last 3% is what separates professional athletes. Yeah. And so they have to do 80% more work to get just a little bit better. The risks risks of injury starts going way up, but Mm -hmm. they have to do that to get that last couple of percent. Most of us don't need that, though. Yeah. There's a lot of people doing really cool research on what's the minimal effective dosage. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually, I'll, I'll, I'll drop this bomb on you. Um, a little sneak peek. Ooh, sneak peek. I like it. Someone's probably exclusive. Like, don't steal this idea. <laughs> um, we're like two years away from finishing this, but we're trying to do a project right now where we do, most people are familiar with intervals, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, 30 on, 30 off, four or five or 10 rounds or whatever. And the, the data out on the, the effectiveness, whether we're, you're talking about appetite suppression, weight loss, health markers, VO2 max, the data on intervals is just enormous right Yep. Everyone's bought in. Okay, it's, it's good for you. Well, what we want to look at is let's take not young college kids, because if, if you don't know much about research, like 85% of human research yes. is in college <laughs> kids. I will confess my studies were too. Oh, <laughs> that's the people I have I had access to, yeah. Right? Or they're in old people because that's the target population. Mm-hmm. No one studies people between like 35 and 50. Yeah. Like you're, it's like a loss. Very rare. Right? And so what we're going to do is actually an interval training study. So eight weeks long. You're going to do some interval training uh, in that middle group. So 40 to 45, 50-year-olds. Uh, one group's going to get three sessions a week. And one group's going to get one session a week. Mm. We know that they're both going to work, right? But yeah. how much more? I want to know... Am I going to get the same health, performance, weight loss benefits yep. with one, you know, we're talking about two to three minutes of total work a week. Yeah. And probably not, but how much less not? Yeah. And how much, right? And that's the thing, because even with the weight training studies and you get all the hip people and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, the percentage from zero sets to one set is massive. Way huge. And after that... It's still better up to a point, but yeah. it's far less in magnitude, totally. right? So if you apply the same concept to interval training, you know, maybe you'll show that just one session a week gets you 50, 60, 70% of the benefit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, and we don't know, but then you can go to those people and say, hey, we know that this is important for health, which is a performance marker. Right. Just doing one interval session a week, you can get yeah. X percentage. Yeah. And that's... Way better than where we're at now, which is, well, you know, probably more, I'm not really sure. Right. It's kind of a crappy attitude in terms of like, well, let's see what the least amount of shit we can do is. 
Like we, we don't want. But that's to a lot of times people's goal. But that's the reality of it, right? Yep. You know, and if yep. you said I can do an intervention that's going to be three minutes of total work and it's going to get you sixty percent versus if you did two, three, or four times that right. amount, right? A lot of people go, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> At least we would know. At least we yeah. would know what the answer is. Or the inverse is we find out, you know what, it didn't do anything. Right. And then we can say, look, one one session a week is just not enough. Exactly. You've got to get... You know what the floor is. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, we're interested in exploring those type of ideas too because, you know, it's going to have a lot of performance benefit. Um, for example, if you look at it from an athlete perspective, or even we'll call ourselves like recreational mm-hmm. athletes. Neither one of us are far from professional athletes, <laughs> but you still compete, I'm sure, right? And, yeah. And, and we're recreational athletes. Okay, can I maintain performance with once a week? Yes. Right? And how long does that stretch out? You know, if I just get one session in a week, you could actually probably hold on to quite a bit of your ability of just, just getting something yep. in once in a while. So. Yeah. I think it's in the whole Russian block periodization. And, sure. You know, Israel has shown a really cool chart looking at uh, residual training effects. Yeah, 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 yeah. And shown that basically max strength and aerobic capacity can be maintained for, you know, up to almost maybe be four weeks. Oh, yeah. You know? oh, I mean, oh, yeah. A long yeah. time. But speed... And things like that are, are very short-lived. Mm-hmm. So if your goal is to try to get, let's say, someone doing a sprint, then you may do some speed work you know, closer to the event, um, and you know basically how far you can go without readdressing those other motor qualities. Yeah, because totally. if you're working with more advanced athletes, the catch-22 you're at is that they only have so much time, they have so much recovery, but they're so adapted to all these other things that... I need a big enough stimulus in order to get that positive adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of helps steer you in the direction of where you need to go for that. Too. Yeah. Well, you know, we published another study, I think also in, in Journal of Applied Physiology, I think, uh, a couple of years ago where we looked at t- – in fact, I just did a write-up of this. Uh, if you go to um, – I think it's on 3Fuel, oh, okay. the website. Um, basically, it was like a uh, an easy breakdown of taper. Oh, nice. Okay. So basically, how long do I back off if I'm trying to peak? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and what I did is I basically outlined a story of a study that we did. Uh, again, a few years ago, we did it with a uh, cross-country team. And so we wanted to look at, all right, if I take three weeks and reduce my training, what happens? Because if you've ever been around an endurance mm-hmm. athlete, trying to get them to cut miles is like... Oh, oh. it's good luck, buddy. Yeah, right, might as well <laughs> pull their eyebrows with your fingers. Yep. It's not going to happen, right? Anaerobic athletes pretend to be okay. Potentially, but yeah. But aerobic athletes are like, I'm not, you're not taking my miles. No. Not going to happen. And so we did it with this actual cross-country team. Um, It was a three-week-long taper. So the end of the three weeks was their conference championship. And so we went back three weeks. And we also did this before the season. So we had before the season. Ah, very nice. At the end of, beginning of taper, at the end of taper. We did muscle biopsies. We did VO2 max tests. We had them run a simulated race. Oh, very cool. At a certain pace. We took biopsies before and after that simulated race to look at gene responses. Uh, yeah. We did um, running economy. Oh, so nice. you run at a certain pace, yeah. your race pace. So efficiency. Efficiency, mm-hmm. exactly. Yep. Efficiency. We did all these things. And I won't give you all of it. You'll have to go to the, the little thing I wrote to read the whole story. But turns out they all got better in terms of their racing. Mm. And what they did is they backed off their volume by 50%. Wow, that's huge. They cut their mileage in half for three weeks. Their VO2 max, their running economy, none of it got worse. 
In fact, we did biopsies. We looked at all their oxidative enzymes, mm-hmm. genes expressed, all the me- metabolic aerobic stuff, no change. Yeah. You cut their mileage in half for three weeks. They didn't lose their VO2 max, economy, metabolic profile didn't change. Here's where it gets crazy. The size and the power of their fast-switch fibers got about 10% better. Yeah, that makes sense. They hypertrophied by 10 to 12% by just cutting the running volume in half for three weeks. <laughs> they got faster, their individual fibers, mm-hmm. not like their leg strength on a performance. Right, I the mean, fiber level. The fiber level, like tie one end of a cell to the end of the other end of a force transducer. What's the physical ability of the fiber? And they got better. Um, the race performance got better as well. And all we did was take stuff back away from them. Yeah. So, you, you know, you're coming, oh, I can hold on for a month. Absolutely. Yeah. The data is clear. Yeah. You reduce stuff by big times. In fact, there's been some papers on taper that showed a 90% reduction in volume. You can still hold on. Yeah. For two, three, four weeks, 28 days. No yeah. question. But you're right on that speed, though. Speed will get you. Yeah. And so what we recommend is a dramatic reduction in volume, but don't play with intensity too much. Right. Because if you start going slow, you will lose that ability very quickly. Yeah. And that always goes back. I mean, I've had a lot of talks with uh, Coach Cal Dietz at the University of Minnesota. Yeah. He's great. Oh, uh, so he's good. awesome dude. Yeah. And I remember once, because I'm helping him with uh, a couple of books, and he's got this huge whiteboard, and I'm sitting in his office, and he's explaining all this stuff, and he's got everything. And I'm sitting there going... Okay, how am I going to explain this to someone else who's not in this room? We didn't videotape it or anything. Oh, no. And it gets done. I'm sitting there thinking for a bit, and I go, Okay, so for all of this, you're telling me to keep the quality of work as high as possible the entire time. And he kind of looks at me, and he goes, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, and then... If you look back, even a lot of the research supports this too, that if your goal is to run fast, running fast is a pretty high quality thing that you would want to do. And if you look, especially for endurance athletes preparing, say, for a marathon, what I've seen a lot of times is they end up in the middle zone, right? Or even sprinters, Charlie Francis would call it the dead zone, where you're running, but you're not quite fast enough that day to get faster at, say, your 200-meter time. But you're not running slow enough for it to be tempo work, to be, to be kind of recovery, maybe some aerobic base, that type of thing. Yeah. And I think uh, lifters can run into that same thing too. Totally. You know, how often have you done, because your coach or whoever wrote and said, you got to do eight weeks or six weeks, and your volume is dropping off, your rep speed's dropping off, you feel like crap. Right. But the paper said, man, i got to go to eight weeks. And I think a lot of times you're... Quality has eroded so far that you're probably getting weaker. Yeah. You know, and then you get into, well, strength is a skill, and now I start missing lifts. You're technically teaching yourself to totally. miss lifts. You're teaching yourself you know? to go slower. And too. be slower and everything else that you don't want to do. Why? Because your quality of performance actually dropped. So interesting you said that. Uh, going back to the taper study I mentioned yeah. cross-country runners, what we did is we monitored their training intensity for the whole three weeks. Uh, we didn't tell them what to do, but here's, we categorized basically their exercise into recovery, easy, uh, moderate, or very high intensity. And they, we didn't, we didn't tell them what to do. They basically got their 50% reduction in volume by just cutting out all the shit in the middle. Ah, uh, makes perfect sense. They kept the recovery yep. stuff. They cut the tempo stuff. 
They kept the speed stuff, and everything else was gone. Yep. And look what happened to performance. They felt way better. Yeah. You know, I worked with, um, as a master student, I worked with Brian Schilling. Oh, Brian's awesome. No, he's Love great. that dude. Amazing, right? Uh, he worked with, he did his graduate work with um, Mike Stone. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. So this is something Brian taught us, and I don't know who originally said this. I'll just quote um, some Russian guy. Yeah. Because I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's always the Russian guys. Right? It's always Russian. Some Bulgarian coach. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever yeah. that means. Yeah. Um, but Brian would always tell us, look, the problem with, um, and I'll stereotype here, American mm-hmm. weightlifting. I don't even know what that means. But yeah. We'll just call it American weightlifting. Point is, problem with some folks is the heavy days aren't heavy enough mm-hmm. and the fast days aren't fast enough. Yes. Which is exactly to your point of, you know, I'll tell the story of, and this happened to me, is, you know, you go in to start a new program on, like, Monday, and you're so excited, and you're going to do, say, 85%, whatever that means for whatever reps, and 85% felt good, mm-hmm. and so you went up to 90, and that felt good, because it's Monday, <laughs> day one, and things felt good, and you go to 95, and then Tuesday is supposed to be, like, a recovery day, mm-hmm. but you still feel pretty good, because it's day one, Yeah. and so it's supposed to be, like, hey, 40, 50, 60% for speed or something. Or for recovery, whatever. But it felt good. So that you, you did a few extra reps. You a couple extra practice ones. Or you let that 40, 50, 60% slide up to 60. Yep. 75. Boom. Well, then you come in. Maybe you take Wednesday off. You come back Thursday and you can do go heavy again. But now you're going to pay the price for those two days. And so don't quite hit your numbers on Thursday. Supposed to get 85%, we'll say. And maybe you just get to 80. And maybe you get 85, but 85 was sloppy. Yeah. And then Friday, maybe it's supposed to be speed day again. But then you show up Friday, and you're still motivated because it's week one, and you're like, man, I had a shitty day yesterday, so you know what? Like, Let me work a little bit harder today. Mm-hmm. Just trying harder makes everything work. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> right? And so you go a little bit heavier on Friday than you were supposed to go, and then you end up in this circle of yep. the light days get a little bit heavier or longer, mm-hmm. and the heavy days get worse and worse and worse, and so you end up having what Brian would say, all these medium days. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you pointed out. Yeah. Right? All this garbage in the middle. Yeah. If I'm not recovering, or I'm not going fast, or I'm not going hard, or I'm not taking my heart rate to its max, or whatever it is, am I just adding volume for the sake of volume? Then, then what am I doing? Yeah. I'm not a volume athlete. I don't need this. Yeah, and I was explaining to people. So, like, one of the things I'm working for is to lift the Thomas Inch dumbbell. So it's oh, big, nice, nice. Big dumbbell cool, with yeah. uh, basically a pop can size handle on it. Oh, and cool. so I just got a replica uh, made of it that I can adjust the weight on it. Oh, and, cool. What's the normal weight? Uh, the inch is actually 173. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 173 pounds, and the diameter is about just under two and a half inches. And it's solid and cast. That's so hard to pick up. So you, you pick it up, and it, it the ends don't spin. Uh-uh. So the whole thing, because of the momentum, not only is it large oh. diameter, it wants to spin on you. Um, so I just got a, a replica just to start training for it. And if people haven't done any, you know, thick bar work, oh, yeah, it's yeah. crazy how much harder it is than you, you think it is. Cause you think even a, a dumbbell for people who lift 173 pounds, it's not that heavy just to deadlift it, just to pick it up, sure. you know, but you start putting those parameters on it. And so the thing I did was the goal I had is that, you know, it's probably going to take me two to three years, you know, to get to that point. And that's fine. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my whole thing is, what can I do each day to make a small progression towards it? Right. That may even be an off day where I'm just doing fingertip push-ups, so sure, some sure, open sure. palm opposite work. Or 
if I, and so the first day I got it, I only got 87 pounds for a single. So my next goal then is, can I do repeated sets of a single? And then yeah, could yeah, I do yeah. Yeah. a double? Could I do a triple? Could I do four reps? And so right, I got up, right. you know, over a period of a couple of weeks where I could do six reps in a row with it. Nice. So now I'm thinking, okay, so that means that my one RM probably went up. So I, you know, put on 97. Oh, I just got a single. Couldn't budge the second one. Right. So then two days later, oh, now I can get two. Right. Right. So it's this slow incremental process. And you may have to go down to a lighter weight and do more volume. Totally. You may have to scale up. And even if you only hit the one rep and it's just two and a half pounds heavier, it's still better than what you've ever done, whether it's a deadlift squat. Sure. The, the lift doesn't matter. No. It's the same thing of how can I accumulate higher quality work? Because I know if I do a better density, so right, volume divided sure. by time, yep, yep, yep. I do more volume, or I do a heavier load, yeah. or, those tonnage. Are, yeah, yeah. or tonnage, yeah, yeah. or speed, sure. those are all positive adaptations that are eliciting the adaptation that I want to get. Yeah. And it's crazy how basic that is, but it's rarely ever taught, and most people never look at their training to make sure that those things are moving in the right direction. Or that they're not jumping too high. Exactly. Down that list. So because like, now if I just said, oh, fuck, I can do this, I'm going to put 115 on there, and I spent all day doing 15 reps of zero, Yeah. I went backwards. I didn't get any stronger. No. You know, no. I went and slid way back. Yeah. Why? We were, because my ego got in the way. But Exactly. <laughs> and your experience, you didn't, you didn't know, I right. could do more today, but that doesn't mean I should. Exactly. Always. Not always. Uh, I, I think it was this dumbbell. I can't remember. I'll tell you two two stories. One quick yeah. one. Um, do you know who um, uh, Bert? Uh, Bert. Oh, what's his dad's name? Oh, they make a bunch of Sornex. Sornex. Yeah, yeah. Brett Sorn. Yeah. 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 So this was probably ten years ago. NSCA conference. They used to come every year, and I think it was this dumbbell. But his what's his dad's name? Um, Whatever, Dad Sornex. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'm blanking on it, but oh, yeah, I, I can picture his face. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He used to have a, I think it was a $100 bill underneath that dumbbell. Mm-hmm. And it would just sit at the conference. Yeah, it's usually probably an inch. And he would say, if you yep. can pick it up, you can have it. Yep. And you're like, it's, uh, it's 100 pounds or 150 pounds. Yeah. It's easy. And every year, no one would pick it up. And then he, you know, he's 50 years old or whatever he is. And I would just walk over there, like, look people at the face, pathetically. Yep. Pick it up. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> and then he'd be like, grip strength. Yeah. It matters. Uh, anyways, yeah, those things are harder than they look, is my point. Yeah, well, I was at the Elite F- FTS S4 compound, and they had an inch dumbbell just laying in the middle of stuff. Yeah. And one of the group I was in with, uh, J.L. Holsworth, this huge dude, like, you know, looks like a side of beef with two eyes stuck on him, <laughs> you know, pulls almost like 800 pounds, has done a bunch of grip stuff, walks over, picks it up, sets it down, and then everyone's just looking at him, and all these other guys come over there because they see... Someone doing, they go, oh, that looks pretty easy. Yeah. Not a single person the whole weekend even it. picked it up. You get one guy would yeah, get a little bit of error, and that was yeah, a, yeah, that yeah. was about it. Yeah. And it's the most horrible thing because you're looking at it, and every part of your brain goes, I should be able to do that. Doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> and I can't, and it just pisses you off. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. We were. I was just in um, Colorado Springs last week. Oh, nice. Um, doing some stuff out there. We actually run a uh, an NSCA clinic for combat sports. Oh yeah, that's right. We have Joel Jamison out. Oh, so good dude. Yeah, he's a good Seattle guy. Yeah, so, yeah. UW guys. Yeah. Um, Joel's great, and he came out. And he was talking about uh, we were just speaking about a second ago about increasing your volume strategically, mm-hmm. and 
he meant volume like we're meaning volume work. Not necessarily just reps, but total more work, yep. more tonnage, whatever you want to, whatever your... Whatever marker you're using. Yes. Yeah. And he would say, look, here's a problem. And we're talking about combat sports, but this could be any sport mm-hmm. or any person. So maybe you go from working out twice a week and you work out for half an hour a week. And now all of a sudden you get more motivated and you add a whole day. Mm-hmm. Now look at your volume. You went from two days a week for 30 minutes to three days a week for 30 minutes. That's a 50% increase in volume in a week. That's road to disaster right there. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I just added one more day. Well, you don't see that's a big number change. Yeah. You need to really progress slowly. So maybe you should have cut your first two days down by 15 minutes when you added that third day or something so that your total work for the week only went up, say, 10%, mm-hmm. which is a, a generally a good number. Then not change your work by more than 10% yep. a week or something. But in our you know, in our sport, in, in MMA, here's what happens is you got 10 to 15 practices a week, and you just add... Like, one more round <laughs> at every practice. One oh, more drill. And at the end of the week, you're like, oh, my gosh. And then three weeks later, you're wondering why your neck is killing you mm-hmm. and you're tired and now you're overtrained. I see the same thing happen to people in real life. All right? And I mean not professional sports. You're recreational people. Again, I'll just add one more day a week or I'll do a few more reps of every set or I'll do one more exercise every day. You can't just add... 50% more volume in a week. Yeah. But you can for two weeks maybe. And then, boom, the knee gets tight. And all of a sudden, why does mm-hmm. my ankle hurt now? Or, man, I'm so tired of working out. I'm drained or whatever it happens to be. So really paying attention to those things and being very smart about, am I lifting more weight? Am I doing more reps? Am I adding more exercises? What kind of combination? What insult am I giving to my body? And is it just a little bit more than last week? If not, we need, we need to be smarter about that. Yeah. Right. Because we can't just can't just add two more pounds every week. Yeah, and that's a yeah, and I'm a big fan of um, adding frequency over time. But yeah. the catch is exactly that: is that I tell people that you have to make the work that you're doing then actually easier. So you're stopping two to three reps away sure. from failure. Mm-hmm. You will email me the first two weeks, and you'll say this is way too easy. Too easy. And I'm like, just. You know, just, just relax, just hold on. And then by week four or five, you're like, this blows. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because it's, I always like starting people super easy because I want to yeah. get rid of all the residual fatigue yeah. and I want their tissue to get used to it. I want them to get in the habit of doing it. And they don't but have it, a world championship in three weeks that they need to train yeah, for. Yeah, there's no... What's the point? There's no big rush. Yeah. Um, but you also look at what is their normal background a lot of times, myself included at times, is you're sitting... You're at a a desk job, things like that. So the only real movement you may get is actually going to the gym. Right. You know, so your sessions, I like to have people be very short sessions, basic movements. Yeah. Higher frequency. But a lot of times when people hear higher frequency, they think exactly what you were saying. Well, I'm going to add a whole other session or two per week. And they don't keep track of that weekly volume and that catches up to them. Because all the effects a lot of times are delayed. Yeah. And they don't show up until later. So they get away with it for the first one, two weeks, and they think life is great. And then right. week three, four, just crush them, and they can't figure out what happened. And, you know, the same thing happens with um, younger people, too. So people in their 20s. And they might get away with it for now maybe like a month or two. Mm-hmm. Or four or five. And then by month five or six, then all of a sudden it's just funk. Mm-hmm. But that came from four months ago when you doubled your volume. I don't yeah. Know. And you felt good for a month because you're young. And you have plenty of recovery, and you're eating pretty decent. 
maybe. Or you're just young mm-hmm. more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> but it will catch up to you. And if you wonder, like, why an athlete's burnt out and, and everything's broken and they're 25, that's probably why. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a big reason of why is we just progressed way too quickly. Um, just because it doesn't hurt now or it does – like, that's not a good indicator. Um, I, I like your fact of, hey, first couple, two weeks – may not feel like much. Yeah. There's enough data. The, the, the evidence is very clear. There is no correlation between your level of soreness and your amount of gains that you get. Yeah, exactly. No correlation there. Yeah. So you can just crush yourself on Monday and be so sore you can't walk for a month. And then you have to take a week off because you're so sore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's okay to leave a training session feeling good. And I don't mean that good of like, yeah, yeah. my ass off, I feel rewarded good. No, I yeah. mean like physically... You, it's okay to sometimes leave your workout feeling physically better than before you started the workout. Yeah. That's okay. I think yeah. people think that's illegal. That's like my preference. So it gets back to the yeah. use stress versus distress. Right. So use stress is stress you can more easily recover from. Distress right. is like competition. You, comp- you know, competing very, very hard sessions that will knock you out for a couple days. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of accumulate as high quality of use stress work as you possibly can totally because you're going to recover faster over time you will do more volume if you look at it from the long term yeah you're going to feel better your risk of injury is less and the nice part is that it was slowly scaling up so the really simple thing i do with people that start you don't notice it either you don't notice it yeah so i'll say okay week one just one set and then week two two sets three sets four sets five sets the most i've never got to is like seven sets yeah. Most people get to the four or five sets, and then I monitor their heart rate and their HRV. So what I'm looking for is where they do really well, and then they just kind of go off the cliff. Yeah. So right. if they only make it to about, let's say, week five, okay, so maybe we'll back them off for a week. But now I really know for the next session and the next programming cycle, pretty good where they're going to be for their overall volume. Right. So I can push them a little bit, but not that much. Right. And I know in the past where I've kind of tried to guess and I go, I think we're going to start you at three to four, you know, sets, right? Just a particular number for volume. Yeah. And I was wrong. Done. Oh, man. It's like Thanks. two, three weeks to recover because I added all that work on top of a bunch of residual fatigue and everything yeah. else. And now they're mad because they've got to scale back. And if I don't, they're really going to be hurting. Oh, yeah. You know, so yeah. it's a, and then I don't know where to go. Yeah. Right. So now I'm like, oh man, I, I spent like basically four weeks, and I'm not as far ahead. Right. Or you're, or you're worse. Or I'm worse. Yeah. Right. And, right there. Yeah. If if you look at, um, and most people are catching wind of this stuff now, but if you look at the behavioral aspect of exercise or this stuff, if you can just show up to the gym and work out, yes, three times. It doesn't matter if that workout is ten minutes long. That's better than doing one day a week for 90 minutes. Yep. Behaviorally, right? Because now it's yep. a pattern. Building the habit. Exactly. I build the habit, right? And so if we can just say, look, I don't want to crush you on Monday because I want you to show up Wednesday excited to train, not yes. going like, I got to do this thing. I'm so sore, but I got to do it. I got to push. I got to push. Yeah. These are not good habits. And so if you know what, Let, let's take it really easy week one. You're not even really going to get... I don't want you to sore at all. Mm-hmm. And then week two, maybe just a, a, a smidgen sore. Mm-hmm. And then week three. And then, you know, by week five, we'll start really working. But I don't need to crush you the first week or two because what's going to happen is you'll be great for week one, week one and a half. And then you'll need that one day off. And then you'll try to yep. make it up. And then you'll need, you'll need that half day off. Or then you'll make it, but you're just dragging ass the whole session. 
and you need to, have to turn the stereo up three more notches because you're. I mean, you need more pre-workout because yep. you're not ready. <laughs> this is not where we need to be. So we need to set behaviors, especially if we're looking at people that are non-professional athletes. Is I don't ever want to break the behavior of you need to train three days a week or four or two or whatever your number is. And that just doesn't get broken. And if our program is breaking that cycle, if the program is causing it, we need to adjust the program. Yeah. All right. This happened. Yeah. And I'm advanced athletes I work with. I give them full permission that if your HRV and numbers are off, just go for a walk, do a mobility day. Right. Right. I've had programs that because their life stress and outside stressors have changed, there was a four-week program that uh, one guy in particular extended to almost like six weeks. Yeah. But at the end of it, he did really well. You know, and he was a little bit nervous. He's going, oh, my God, this was a four-week program. And it took me six weeks to complete it. And I'm like, but, hey, you had a whole bunch of stuff that happened that was out of your control. And if we compress that with the additional stress that we didn't account for at the beginning, yeah. you probably would have had something really bad happen. And so if it took you a little longer, that's... That's okay. Yeah. You know, you still got the quality work in. You, you did the best you could for your body and you did better. Yeah. So. It's a uh, it, it, program design. You have to realize this. If you're really good in this field or if you're just kind of new to this field or maybe you don't do your programs, but you're you're maybe thinking about it or something. Anyone that tells you anything different than this is, is completely lying to you or doesn't want to talk <laughs> to you. But all of program design is a guess. Totally. It is a straight guess. It's an educated guess, but it's still a guess. Hopefully it's an edit change. <laughs> Some of them, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> so there is no like four week program. There no. is, I think it's going to be four ish. Yeah. But you know, I'm pretty sure based on this, this, and this, and this, most of the time that means four, but it might be two, might be, and then we'll, it is, it's all a guess. So when things aren't lining up, you have to be willing and able to, to make adjustments where people get into problems though, is they get say two weeks in or three weeks in and like this person you mentioned, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And they go, this program isn't working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, t- dump it. Start like, over. No. <laughs> like, no, we need to just extend or back or add or whatever. But we can't just go three weeks of this program, a month of this diet, three weeks of this eating habit. Now I'm going to try this for a month. I'm, like, that's not going to work at all. Yeah. Um, I always say in my class, you know, we teach the, the textbook what's called modifiable variables to program. So this would be your exercise intensity, yep. your volume, the order, you know, which exercise do I do first, second, third, right? There's, there's seven of these modifiable variables. But to me, the three most important modifiable variables to any program are consistency. Like, are you there? Mm-hmm. If, if you did my program and you picked the worst program in the world, but you did it consistently for a year, I promise you're going to be better. Oh, yeah. I promise. Oh, yeah. But did you do it for three weeks and then you got sick? And then you did it for another five weeks, but then you got tired, and then your kid had a birthday, and then you did it for another two weeks, and then your mom had, oh, the end of the year, my program sucks, it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Give me consistency. And with consistency, I mean time. Mm-hmm. Right? So consistency is one more one. Patience is the second one. Give me time, right? And then the third one is adaptability. Yeah. Like, we've got to be adaptable. We can't abandon the program. That's Abandoned is not adapt. Like, right. That's a different word. That is abandoned. Yeah. That is not what I'm trying again. Let's adapt, let's change, but we can't throw everything out and start again. You have to be patient, consistent, and adaptable. If you do that, most of your programs are going to work. Yeah. close. And I took lines up front that it's kind of like a living document, that it's my best guess, but it's a template, and if something doesn't work, doesn't feel right, yeah. send me a video, whatever, we'll, we'll change it. Yeah. You know, especially if someone's goal is more body composition, and I say, let's do deadlift. I sat down one day, and I wrote up, 
22 different versions of a deadlift I could do. Nice. You know, like sumo, conventional, sure. trap bar, and then you get into bands, chains, yeah. different loading positions. You get into Jefferson's, asymmetrics right, ones, yeah. Jefferson's, which I'm a Sick huge it. fan yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. One hand, farmer. Yeah. Now, you're really going to tell me that for a person whose goal is body composition orientated and some performance, that they did a Jefferson versus a sumo, and that was the main reason one program worked and one didn't. Right. But if they force themselves to do a lift and they get injured or they get hurt and they don't feel good, they're going to stop doing it, Terrible. right? And that's going to, you know, completely throw them off track. Yeah. You know, so. I, have a, I have a rule. I actually call these things law. So I have certain laws of strength and conditioning. And I lay these laws out at the beginning of every one of my classes. And I don't really care what class it is. <laughs> Here's a law. That's good. <laughs> one of them is what I call exercises do not determine adaptations. Application. Determines that adaptation. Ah, I like that. That's right? a good one. So don't tell me... Say that again and explain it for people who may not have heard of that. Yeah, it's exercises do not determine adaptation. The application determines the adaptation. So if you want to get your butt bigger, right, you can't say, I'm going to go squat. Because how you squat determines the adaptation you get, mm -hmm. not the damn exercise. Same thing with a deadlift. Well, I want to get my back stronger. I'm going to deadlift. Well, really? How are you deadlifting? Because that's going to determine if your back gets stronger or not. Sure. Your technique, your position, how heavy, how often, how many reps in a row, how many breaks, what's your rest intervals. That is how you do it, and that determines the adaptation you actually get. Vastly more important, right? And so when we talk about something like body composition, that's about accumulating work. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, you want to do three sets of 10, three sets of 12, you want to do four sets, you want to do, does that really matter? Yeah. You've got to accumulate work. That's the application. That's what matters. So you want a deadlift? Fine. You want a deadlift with a PVC pipe? Fine. You want a deadlift with kettlebells, barbells? That doesn't yeah. matter. You're still pulling heavy weight off the floor. Pull it. How many? <laughs> Are you doing enough reps to accumulate work? Are you progressing things? Are you staying healthy so that you, so that you will do it? Mm -hmm. That's what's going to determine your adaptation. Not. I'm not saying exercise choice is not important. Right. It is. But for that, it's not important. Do you think your body really knows or gives a shit? Where your hands are in terms of no. losing body weight. No. It doesn't care if you're front squatting, lunging, split squatting, step ups. All it knows is the glute is contracting fully and it did it 45 times. That's what's going to determine your adaptation. How you do the exercise. I don't care what the name of the exercise is. How are you doing it? That's what matters. Yeah, and I think it's doing the ones you can do then over a consistent amount of time. You know, like historically, back squats have been just, I can finally do them now with really light weight again after a bunch of PT you, and all sorts of terrible, stuff. terrible, terrible. I have horrible levers for back You've squatting. Got bad body form. Um, but in the past, I've forced myself in because everyone said, oh, you man, you got a back squat. That's the best exercise. Right. And I, I sent videos to people, like very high lifters, biomechanic people. Yeah. Like, yeah, it looks pretty good. Load's pretty light, but it looks good. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But it... It always felt like just shit. Yeah. And every time I would force myself to do it, mechanics look good, I'd tweak something. I'd hurt something. I would hate to do them. I wouldn't look forward to training. And eventually I just said, ooh, what am I doing? Why? I could do Why? a front squat. I could do kettlebells. I could do safety bar squat. I could... There's all these other options I could do. Yeah. And even then I said, well, I'm just going to do more strongman stuff anyway. Front squats probably has way more carryover than a back squat yeah, to begin yeah. with. Yeah. You know, again, but I think it's where you, it just doesn't feel right and you push yourself 
because someone told you this is a magical exercise that's going to fix everything, and then you just end up completely off course, and then you're screwed. What's the best program in the world? What's the best eating program in the world? What's the best exercise program in the world? It's the one you're actually going to do. Yeah. Right? The one you'll do consistently. Yeah. So if there's one little thing that you are just hating, I mean, take my wife. She's 80% femur. Yeah. Right? Her femur goes from her jaw to her nose. <laughs> She's got a torso about six inches long, super long things. She is a terrible back squatter. Yeah. Terrible. Like, yeah. It just doesn't matter. She's in a horrible position. But she, I don't have to tell her anything to do a deadlift. Yeah. I am the exact opposite. Yeah. Right? I am just not good at pulling. Um, we always, there's always been a running joke with me. If I can deadlift it, I can clean and jerk it. Wow. And it's not that far off. <laughs> Nice. My, my max deadlift is not that much higher than my max clean and jerk. Nice. It's not good. And the funny part is, if I can't front squat it, I'll just clean it and try it again. <laughs> nice. Again, this is, this, these are not like, I'm not bragging. That's not a good yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But that's just, I'm very good at squatting relative to myself, relative right. to my own deadlift. Right. I, I'm just a terrible deadlifter. My leverages aren't good. And so traditionally right now, she's squatting a ton and I'm deadlifting a ton. Mm-hmm. because we're terrible at those movements. And the days we go to do it, if it's a squat day, she is just rumbling. And <laughs> she always wants to negotiate, like, well, can I do this instead? Can I do yeah. this? And I'm kind of the same way when I deadlift. I'm like, uh, she always wanted a deadlift. I'm like, all right, yeah, I got a deadlift. But that's because we were working on that weakness that we're terrible at. Yeah. But if uh, the days were, say like you, hey, I'm traveling, like I need to get some work in, but I'm not, I don't have time to work... I'm never going to deadlift those days. Yeah. Because I'm going to pick the thing I'm good at. Yeah. That I like doing. Yeah. I know I'll get better work in. If I struggle my ass to do a deadlift and get crappy work done, low quality, I'm just doing reps to do reps. Yep. All right. Let's pick things I'm actually like. And so I'll default to those. So it's it's not that one's better than the other. But you have to understand the situation. Right. And, and, and picking the exercise or the variation, whether that means you're doing a kettlebell or a band or a silly thing, pick the one that you like because... Is it really matter that much the actual exercise? Yeah. In some cases, but most. Yeah, and I would even actually give people permission to do asymmetric versions, which have been sure. taught to be, ooh, like a Jefferson or a straddle deadlift. Yeah. I've had, I don't know how many people now who had back pain doing a normal deadlift and Jefferson deadlift with no back pain at all. Right. So I'm like, yeah, just keep doing that. And lo and behold, they get better at it. And then they go back several months later in a couple of cases could conventional deadlift now without back pain? Yeah. You know, so you go, well, was it some weird weakness somewhere? What was going on? I freaking don't know. Yeah. You know, but sometimes even that kind of stuff will allow them to then be more consistent and to be able to, to do it again as yeah. opposed to, oh, I just can't do anything like that. Right. So. My friend, uh, my friend Kenny Kane, he's out here actually in LA. He's got it broken down what he calls simple seven. So he tries to break down all movements into seven categories. So we were talking one day and, and we're going through it. I'm like, Kenny, like seven is too many. You got three. <laughs> you got pull, press, and turn, right? And then I was actually talking to my students and they were having a hard time because they were like, basically, okay, is a is a, a Jefferson deadlift, and this is actually very specifically when it came up, is that still a pull or a press? Because you can be very vertical. Oh, sure. Kind of right? portal, so is, yeah. is it a hinge or is it a squat? And I got your chin. I'm like, look. Okay, you know what? There's only one exercise. <laughs> there is a muscle contraction. Everything is a pull. Yeah. Muscle doesn't push. Yeah, it doesn't. It's muscle not set pulls. up that way. 
it only pulls. So if you do a bicep curl, your bicep is pulling. If you do a tricep push, your tricep is pulling. Right. Everything is a pull. And they were like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, this is you're, you're, you're playing arbitrary games. Now, I play those games, too, and it helps us categorize mm-hmm. exercises. But if we really want to break it down, there is only one exercise in the whole world. And that's a, and that's a pull. Everything is a pull. Yeah, that's good. So, like, well, is this a deadlift? Well, no, this is... This. Who, who cares? Go move it. Yeah. Like, go move it. I don't care. Do it with one arm or with the thing or... <laughs> You're like, well, this, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It just move. I think you'd be all right. Yeah. And I think it's the things that we tend to argue about the most are probably... A lot of times the least relevant. You know, <laughs> if you look at the discussions people have about... Oh, I don't know, this, you know, crazy Russian super squirrel secret exercise and the way it was exactly programmed into this. And then you see, like, some pretty high-level people and you see what they eat and what they actually do for exercise a lot of times. And a lot, it's usually not fancy. Usually their nutrition is horrible. Horrible. You know, and Almost I always. think people would be just shocked by that, that they're... Yeah. And most of the time, they're not on the internet arguing about idiosyncratic things either you know they're because they're doing something else <laughs> yeah yeah no kidding yeah yeah that's i mean i've been around a lot of professional athletes nfl major league baseball um ufc you name it and yeah you nailed it some of them you're like wow that's what you do yeah and some of them like <clears throat> nba oh yeah train oh, oh god <laughs> they don't train oh, you know baseball's bad too yeah, it's getting players, better, but yeah. Yeah, basketball players are allergic to the weight room. Yeah. Allergic. All they want yeah. to do is play basketball. All you yeah, know, that's, that's all, all they, they ever do. cared about. That's all they want to do. It's good yeah. yeah, so it's, it's not a good moment <laughs> at all from them. Yeah. Cool, and last thing we'll finish up. Uh, I know you do a lot of work with muscle fibers. So mm. what would be useful for people to learn about that, and what has your research found? I actually think that's a good transition. Because um, it is related to what we were talking about before. It wasn't like we took like a... 45, 50 minute tangent for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, maybe, but. Well, yeah. <laughs> what I would actually say is I'll go back to just the conversation just a second ago of, okay, uh, let's argue about idiosyncrasies of a program. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to do five sets of five. Well, you think three sets of five is better. You think six. Of, do you really think physiologically your body really knows the difference between a Jefferson deadlift and a traditional deadlift? Yeah. Muscle, do you think muscle is smart enough to know whether you did 32 reps or 28 reps? No way. Yeah, it just knows tension. No way, yeah. right? It just knows pull. Yep. Pull, pull, pull. So when we start looking at some of the fiber stuff that we're doing, it's going to basically give the same message. You know what? Those little details you're all whining and bitching about, <laughs> I don't pick it up at this level. Yeah. Muscle don't know, muscle don't care. And you're looking at the fiber level. So you're taking like the smallest little intact unit mm-hmm. out of a muscle and looking at it. Yeah. So you're not even looking at sort of gross muscle activation. You're on like the smallest level before you go into the individual components, so to speak. We're going down to the individual components. Too. Yeah, and you're looking at even active myosin and each component. Yeah. So think about it like this way. Um, you, 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 let's take your leg muscle. Okay, so your leg has got four, we'll, we'll say the quad. It's called the quad because it's got four muscles, right? Oh, there's five. Oh, I know. Yes, yes. <laughs> anyway. I saw that. There's apparently a new quad muscle. Yeah. Someone called the quindriceps. <laughs> right. So if you go into one of those muscles, what you have to realize is your muscle is actually made up of, of hundreds of thousands or more individual muscle fibers. And it's kind of like a cable. 
where you have an insulation on the outside, mm -hmm. and then you wrap a bunch of cables together with a bunch of duct tape, <laughs> right? And then you wrap a bunch of those together, and you bundle it up, and you kind of bit it. Um, a friend of mine also refer to this as a ponytail. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, so each individual hair is yeah. a muscle fiber, yeah. but that's one ponytail. It's one muscle. So we go in, actually, with the big needle, and we take biopsy samples from the muscle of people. So we take chunks of their living tissue right out with the needle, and then we start analyzing it at the single fiber level. And we put it, we look at the things like their fiber type, right? So this would be, you know, fast twitch people or slow twitch people. And we measure those things. And we go even further down or we're looking at um, the, the DNA level. So the nucleus, which holds the DNA and it tells your muscle to grow, shrink, die, repair. How many do they have? Where are they located at? Most people don't realize this. In fact, I just gave a talk to our biology department um, last semester. And... What you have to realize is almost every cell in all of biology has one nucleus, mm -hmm. right? This is what holds your DNA, grows. And I was talking about the fact that skeletal muscle in humans is multinucleated. Yeah. And the biologists were like, do what now? <laughs> like, you found a cell that has more than one nucleus? And I'm like... Yeah, we've known about this for a while. Yeah, and they just had no idea. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't appreciate how rare it is in biology to have a multinucleus. I think it's the only cell. one, isn't it's it? It's about the only one. Yeah, yeah. It's also the biggest by volume cell you're ever going to find. Yeah. I mean, the cells, huge. your human skeletal muscle cells are freaking huge. And so those are the things we're looking at is how big are your fibers, the contractile units, um, the, the fiber types and stuff. And okay, if I do 10 sets of three versus five sets of five versus three sets of 10, does that really matter? Do I really see a difference in the fiber, act, the f changes in the fiber type, its ability to produce force? Um, not at the nerve level or neuron, but like it, just the fiber itself. Um, so that's some of the stuff we're looking at. So I can't give you any training <laughs> advice now. Yeah. Because in general, what we're finding is, look, there's a difference between running 50 miles a week and lifting. Mm -hmm. But the difference between your program, your lifting program and, and my lifting program, at that level, it, it probably doesn't matter. Now, I'm not saying it's totally irrelevant. Right, right. I'm not saying our programs are the same and right. the same thing. What I'm saying is, you know, like, look, you can't, I promise you right now, you can't do a program. If we wrote a program to improve speed, I can't be like, ah, oh, mine's going to turn on more fast switch fibers. Yeah. Like, mine might make you faster, but it won't be because of that. Yeah. It'll be something else. And so, it's just, we're just not that sensitive. Um, and again, I don't want you to feel like, Hey, all the stuff that you've ever learned about program design is unimportant, so just pick any program and go do right, it. Right, right. That's definitely not what I'm saying. <laughs> Most definitely not. Yeah. Um, what I'm saying, though, is the reason physiologically people give for why their program is good, the reasoning is usually all wrong. Yeah. But the, it might be important. It may still work. Yes. Yeah. But from a fiber type, um, we don't know. So we're trying to unearth it right now. We've got some studies that we're looking at, trying to figure out, okay, how much of your of your muscle performance is dedicated by your DNA and how much of it is trainable. Mm. And the early indications, the data we're getting now is showing pretty clearly that you have much more trainability than you think. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's not all your genetics. It's usually your genetics matched with your 30 years of not doing shit. <laughs> that's what did it. Oh crap. Yeah. Right. Screwed. So the, <laughs> there's the numbers that we're seeing are much higher than before. We are seeing some markers change that we previously thought were all genetically predetermined. Mm. For example, some people will tell you that you can't change your fiber type. 
Yeah. Right? So how many fast do you have versus yeah, You're born with a set amount of each, so to speak. You are definitely born with a certain starting point, yeah. but there is extreme changeability within that. Like, huge numbers. Uh, 20, 30, 40% changes. Um, we see fiber types changing in as little as a few weeks. Wow. Um, specifically, if you go to that, which is I'm pointing at my couch right here. Oh, yeah. Right? The so, couch fibers. Yes. <laughs> if you have a long weekend... Where you literally are like on the beach for four straight days, um, we can start to notice fiber type changes. Really, in four days? Yeah, we huh, have done um, bed rest studies. Yeah, where you put people into bed. Yep. Now, I like, didn't do these. My, it's like my, throwing them into space. Right. Yeah. And you can start seeing fiber type changes in a week, two weeks, things like mm. that. So, you know, if you take a weekend off, you're not going to change your fiber type. Right. Don't, don't worry about right. it. Right. My point is, it's not like eight years of. Of inactivity. Like, this is going to happen. You have a bad semester. You have a bad, you know, winter break. You're going to see those changes physiologically. Yeah. And I think it's also, um, people don't understand when they say bed rest. is literally, if you have a bed rest study, (laughs) they're not getting up running around the hospital. They are literally laying in bed pretty much all hours of the day. Not pretty much all hours. I mean, most of the time they're catheterized and they're not getting up at all. <laughs> so generally what this means is about a 6% decline. So that means your yep. head is Whoop. below your feet yeah, for shifts and... 60 to 90 straight days. Yeah. You don't go to the bathroom. You don't lean up to watch TV. Yeah. You, your head stays below your feet for 90 days. Um, th- that's what a true bed rest would do. Yeah. Not like the, I stayed in bed all weekend with yeah. Netflix. <laughs> you weren't really in bed all weekend. Yeah, and that just kind of matched with what you know. A lot of other coaches I've heard say is that even if you take a day off, you know, just get up, move around, do some light work, maybe even do some mobility stuff. I know that's what I've found works better for me. That's what I usually recommend yeah. to clients. It's very rare that you're ever just going to be completely comatose in a bed for 24 hours. Yeah, and if you are, you usually don't feel too good getting up the next day. Feel terrible. You feel worse. Yeah, <laughs> which is actually what we were talking about earlier with taper and backing yeah. off. Is one thing that I'll tell people is. Even if you're going to take a day off, if you're used to training five days a week, don't mess with frequency. Mm-hmm. Don't Not too much. I say no more than like a 20% change in frequency. If you're used to training six days a week and you want to back off because you want to run a, weight, run a race or something or you got a, a, a meet you're going to do, don't go down to two days a week. Yeah. You're going to feel terrible. Yeah. You will feel awful. Yep. Stay at five or six or maybe cut off one day. Just don't do a lot those days. Yep. Do your mobility work. Do a good rollout. Whatever you're going to do. Dynamic warm up, whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. But if you cut that frequency down, you're gonna feel terrible. Yeah. We had a, I had an athlete, one of my UFC fighters, a couple of years ago. He trains in New York, and he'll do his last two weeks in his camp out here in California. Oh, okay. Right? And then he'll go to his fight wherever it is. Um, he showed up, and for probably the last three weeks, he almost did nothing but recovery. Wow. He was so overtrained; it was crazy. Oh. But we're like, get up, mm-hmm. move around a little bit, yep. and then it's ice bath, and then it was Normatec, and then it was everything we could possibly yeah, throw get at him. Yeah. To, to get. And it, and it was two weeks of almost nothingness before he started feeling better. Wow. But the days when he would just take the day off, he'd feel terrible. Yeah. Terrible. And we're like, all right, let's get around. We're just going to do, when we get warmed up, we'll do one five minute round on the bag, and then done. Mm-hmm. Which is like a. It's basically an off day for him. Oh, yeah. You know, which is yeah. nothing. He's used to training two to three times a day, literally. Yeah. Six days a week. <laughs> 
So that was quite quite bad. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Don't don't be off, off, off. For if you don't believe me, go sit on a beach, drink mai tais for three straight days, yeah. and then train. Tell me how you feel. Yeah, you'll feel terrible. Yeah, and one of the tips I picked up from Cal Deeds too is that he'll have guys go to the gym and take like a trap bar deadlift. And then have it be completely unloaded yeah. and put the pins at the top. So the trap oh, yeah, bar yeah, is yeah. underneath the pins. And so you slowly pull up against the pins so you're, you know, like two to three inches from lockout. Or you could even yeah. do mid-thigh. Yeah. And just do an isometric for like five seconds. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So you just do a couple sets of that. So it's a max isometric. So you're still getting some tension. Easy. Though. But there's no load. There's no eccentric. There's no yeah. other force. And he said that a lot of his guys, for their off day, will just go in and do a couple sets of that, maybe some warm-ups and mobility, and they'll still feel pretty good, they, yeah. you know, they'll kind of recover a little bit better, but you've just basically dramatically cut out, you know, the load, the volume, the eccentrics, and that type of thing. So. Yeah, and that's the stuff that beats on you. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the pounding, the landing, that'll mm-hmm. really, really, really get you. What we've also found, too, is, you know, generally moving fast is okay. Hmm, interesting. If you do things yeah. that go fast, you're fine. It's the load ah, and usually the volume that gets you. Okay, uh, And so if you do some light banded stuff, um, or what you can also, what we found is you can do some what we call pump. Yes, that's what I've started doing with people. Just get the pump in. Yeah. Right? Just, I don't <laughs> care. Go do 20 sit-ups, 20 bodyweight squats, yep. 20 you know, push-ups. And just, I want you to get a pump. And you can get to a pump and you feel pretty good. And that actually generally makes you feel better. Yeah. Don't crush yourself with the pump. Yep. Just feel the pump. Feel that little inflation. Right. And, okay. Well, then we're done. Yeah. We'll do some fast things. We'll get a quick pump in. Maybe we'll do some machine. You know what? We're gonna go to the machine. Yeah. We're gonna do some machine leg curls. Yep. A set of ten. You know, leg press. A machine bench press. A set of ten rows. And you know, some abs, and then shut it down. Yeah. And you generally actually walk out, and you're like, I feel really good. Yeah. Actually, right now. Yeah, I call it the dude bra days. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I've done that with a lot of people. So like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one of the programs I use is just, you know, start with a compound lift, maybe it's squat one day, bench, sure. you know, deadlift one day, and maybe accessory work. And for, it's usually guys who are looking for more accessory stuff, body composition. I'll be like, yeah, Tuesday is an upper body hypertrophy day. Thursday is a lower body hypertrophy day. Sure. Saturday is an interval day. Sunday's off. You know, these are people who are already, you know, a little bit more advanced. They're not brand new. And what I find is that the you, the hypertrophy days are literally that. Just go in, just get a pump. You're nowhere close to failure. You're you're not in there for more than 45 minutes. No. Yeah. You're not doing anything that hard. I mean, they're like, wow, oh, I, I feel better. And, you know, they see better results and all that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. And it's... Easy on their nervous system. Their HRV is normally neutral or even a little bit better the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I found that that actually works really well. Where five years ago, I never thought I would be in the gym doing, like, arm day. You right. know? It's like, oh, wow. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> one of the things I always tell my students, too, is don't hesitate to lie. Yeah. Like, lie the hell to your clients. <laughs> and here's what I mean by that. Uh, I used to do NFL combine prep. Oh, sure. Years ago, right? So these are college kids, um, you know, your big name kids, and they're about to go to the NFL, mm-hmm. get ready for the NFL Combine. So you usually have anywhere between four and 12 weeks to work with them, depending. But um, at the one place I was at in Arizona, Saturdays were always um, supposed to be cold bath, hot, you know, plunge recovery. It was the athletic trainers were in, the physical therapists were in chiropractors were in and it was basically a let's correct everything from the week before your off day no one was showing up 
<laughs> right? No one was showing up to do TheraBand work. No one is yeah. driving in the facility for 45 minutes of active recovery. Like the, and so we changed Saturdays. Saturdays were the gun show. Dude. Yeah, yeah. And so Saturdays <laughs> were literally nothing but biceps and triceps. <laughs> and here's what we did. We were like, all right, uh, you and you and you. You pick your favorite bicep exercise. You pick your favorite one. You pick your favorite one. And then you, you, and you. You pick your favorite tricep and you pick your favorite tricep and tricep. And we let them do whatever, you know, bro sesh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it was always, oh, hey, no, you're done. Let's go um, Let's go see the, the physical therapist. Okay, cool. Oh, you know what? We're going to finish the gun show today. We're going to hop in the, the yeah, ice cold bath or whatever. Yeah. Whatever we're doing. And we never had a complaint. And you know what's funny? No one ever missed a training session. Yeah. We didn't care. We're like, you know what? Blow out your triceps or blow out your yeah. biceps specifically. I'm like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't care. Move, Monday's a movement day. We're going to do on the field running, agility stuff. By the time we, yeah. look, we bench again, it's probably Tuesday. Yeah. I don't care. But we found, I mean, we had to lie to them. What is, we gave them something that, like your, like your Tuesday, Thursday. So yeah. Like, fine. I don't care. You know, get a pump. Do whatever stupid-ass exercise you want. Yeah. I don't care. You're going to do as many reps as you can. Go as heavy as you want. I don't care. Do whatever you want to do. And they would get all day. Take their shirts off. <laughs> whatever. And they're just cranking away curls. And like, just, our eyes are just rolling, going, yeah, come on, dude. Whatever. But then, all right, now let's get some work done. Or we would say, look, okay, we're going to do that, but you got to do 15 minutes on this, 15 minutes on this, and then we're going to go hit the guns. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what it was. A buddy of mine who trains a lot of NFL pro players would would say that when he did more training stuff with them, like in the gym stuff, which yeah. he doesn't do as much now, his deal was, okay, you come work with me Monday through Friday. It was just a standard schedule. And he's like, you do all the stuff we need you to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You do a good job. Friday, you get to do arm day. Cool, right? You know? yeah. And the guys yeah. were like, he said his compliance went through the roof. Right, yeah. Because he's thinking... These guys are all performance. They're getting paid millions of dollars right, right. on how they perform. And then one guy said to him, he goes, but bro, I want my arms to look good on TV. Yeah, yeah. And then he went, oh my God. So like this yeah. to a lot of them is actually a weird priority. You know I mean? In the way that their head is kind of wired. He's like, yeah. I don't agree well, with that, but... Yeah, but if, yes and no. Like, look, it's, it's if that's things. what works for them, yeah, and that's what they think is going to make them successful, and they put in all the other work and they get it done. He's yeah. like, I'm not going to argue with them. No, <laughs> no, whatever. Like, you know, going back when we were talking earlier about, you know, trying to convince people that training to be an athlete and health is the same thing. Yeah. So I go through a chart a lot of times when I give a talk, and I'll basically be like, all right, here's a pyramid. Why do you exercise? At the bottom of the pyramid, it's almost always. To look good naked. Yeah. Or to look better naked. Yeah. Right? And then it's so I can eat. Yeah. Right? And then it's, well, maybe for our athletics or performance phase. And then way up at the top, it's health. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, most of us know that exercising is good for our health, but in this demographic, if you're under 50, you're exercising so you can look better. Yeah. Generally. But my argument is, look, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care which one of these it is. Because you're getting this health benefit if you're training hard and consistently. Yep. And I don't care what your motivation is. Same thing with the NFL players. Oh, you want to do this so that you look better on camera? I don't care. If that's what the motivation it takes to get you to do the work that you yeah. need to actually play better, yeah. I don't Great. care what your motivation <laughs> is. Right? If you are just so arrogant, you want to look better in the, in, the, in the mirror, but that's what gets you to train hard and to be healthy and eat better, fine. Yeah. For most of the people, that's a good thing. Yeah. All right? Few people will go too far down the spectrum. Yep. But most people, cool. Right, my motivation to lift and my wife's motivation to lift 
are totally different. Mm-hmm. But I don't care because we train. You know, yeah. She probably trains hard, but that's not the point. <laughs> She's not as broken as I am. <laughs> it's easier for her. Yeah. Anyways. Cool. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. So where can people find more about you? Um, so we do a pretty good job of putting our stuff out on our social media. Yeah, uh, see a lot of cool stuff from you. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I think it's Dr. Andy Galpin. That'd be just D-R-A-N-D-Y-G-A-L-P-I-N on Instagram and Twitter. I'm pretty crappy at Facebook, but you can try. I see a few messages from there pop across once in a while. You know, I'm, I haven't figured out the new system, though. So I only get like this, like I see yours and like three other people's things and nobody else's. So like I was kind of I don't know how they changed the algorithm, but yeah. yeah. I think they're doing it with Instagram too. Yeah, they're trying to do it now. Well, because pay to play. So, uh, so I might get crappier at it. Okay. <laughs> but we do that there. Um, you can check out, uh, the bigger one is Barbell University. So just go to www.barbelluniversity.com. I don't know why I said www. Everybody knows that by now. <laughs> but go to that. We're releasing a bunch of stuff on there, which is going to be upcoming soon. Cool. So that's where you can see more of it. But we try to post all of our research on our social when we can. Or if not, I post pictures of my dogs. There you go. So Your dogs are very cute. I've they're barking them. right now. Yeah. The UPS guy. are going to tear them apart. Probably. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, awesome. Great being here. Yeah. Um, thank you very so much. Let's go drink some some adult beverages. Yeah, sounds good. Have some tacos. Thanks, Doc. Yep.